Hey, my name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. And as I walked in this morning, I, I, the, one of the first, well, I wasn't walking in. Someone else was walking. But I saw them come in, these two guys, right, in their Seahawks jerseys. They've already been mentioned and called out because it was fantastic. And I don't know if, if you enjoyed that as much as I did, but I, I just felt this sense of, of connection with these two young boys as they came in with Russell, Russell Wilson just on their, on their chest. And, and there's just something about that when we see someone who maybe it's whether they're wearing the same kind of jersey or, or, or team, something that just, it's a natural connection. Like we feel like they're, they're one of us or, or we're one of them. And, and I was just reminded as I experienced that this morning, how that's kind of part of our hope as you come into this place, that you come into this place feeling like I belong here. Like this, this is a place where, where I feel at home and welcome and connected. But even more than just on the, on the same team, what, what we talk about here is that we believe that when we gather together centered around Jesus Christ, that we are more than just good friends. We are more than just like-minded individuals. We are, we are family. And so as you come into this place, just welcome home. Welcome in, into this place. And I hope that, that you are growing in, in your comfort with, with this family. You're beginning to, to meet and to greet and to know other people here in this place. Now, as Mitchell mentioned, we're going to continue this morning in, in our series in, in the Gospel of John, where, what we've been calling Come and See, where we've been looking at, at the story of Jesus as told by John. And, and this morning, we're going to do something just a little bit different. I know the last few uh, weeks that, that I've been preaching, I've had us all stand as we've read the scripture together, and we'll get back into that probably next week. But this week, I'm going to read three different sections, like at different times in the sermon. So I don't want you getting tired. I don't want anybody complaining about sore legs tomorrow. I'm just going to let you just stay seated. But I'm going to read a couple of passages, and then we're going to break it down as, as we go along. So if you happen to have a Bible with you, I will encourage you to open that up to John chapter chapter 3. And if you didn't happen to bring a Bible with you, obviously the words will be up on the screen behind me. And then uh, you could also quickly download an app, I'm sure, if you don't already have one on your phone. So we're in John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 3, verses 22 through around 36. And here's what it says at the beginning of that passage in John chapter 3, verse 22. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over over the matter of ceremonial washing They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So here, Jesus is is moving away from Jerusalem. He's spent some time there. He's on his way into the Judean countryside. And John points out that Jesus is, is with his disciples, that his disciples are, are following Jesus together. Maybe that sounds familiar. Maybe you've heard someone say that in this place before, this idea of of following Jesus together. But I'm not the only one that that talks about it. In fact, I was reading a book this last uh, week or so by John Mark Comer. It's his new book that's called Live No Lies. And he didn't pay me to to read from it or to even recommend it, but I would highly recommend it. It's a great book. But at the end of his book, he talks about the church. 
And I want you to listen to what he says in, in the end of his book. He says, whether you define church as a Sunday morning gathering around a stage, a much smaller community around a table, or as I would recommend, a mixture of both, we can't follow Jesus alone. Jesus did not have a disciple, singular. He had disciples, plural. The call to follow Jesus was and still is a call to join his community of the way. And by following Jesus together, not alone, we are able to discern, one, discern Jesus' truth from the devil's lies, two, to help one another override our flesh by the Spirit, and three, form a robust community of deep relationships that function as a counterculture to the world. And I just, I was reminded, because it's interesting, at, the, at this section of Scripture, John points out that Jesus goes out into the Judean countryside with his disciples, and then he doesn't talk about Jesus at all after that for about three paragraphs. We're going to get to that in a minute. But he points out that Jesus is, is with his disciples, and that we understand that that means that they are following Jesus together. And so my question this morning for you and, and for myself is, is who are you following Jesus with? Like, honestly, what does that look like for you in this season? For some of you, it may be that you've, you've joined a group. You have a, a couple of other families or individuals that you meet with weekly or, or every other week to, to study the Bible or to, to talk about a book. Maybe you're meeting in a smaller group of like two or three people just to kind of check in and, and talk about what life is, is looking like now. Maybe you have a, a spiritual director or, or a mentor. You're just meeting one-on-one -on -one with someone who's, who's a little bit farther down the road than you are, and you're just trying to get some advice about this life. Maybe there's, there's just not much that you're doing right now when it comes to following Jesus with someone else. And I would encourage you in this moment to not let this moment or this thought pass you by that, that we can't follow Jesus alone. It's not the way that it was ever intended to be. I mean, we saw that in, in John's gospel and we see it in all of the gospels that as soon as Jesus starts inviting people to follow him, it's, it's people, not a person. And so we are called to be together. And let me just let you know that, that if you are, are needing some help with that, like myself and, and Mitchell and Olivia, we would love to help bring people together to help you if you're, if you're needing to, wanting to take that next step, to help people follow Jesus together. Just, just let us know. But as we continue in what we read about today, like I said, John mentions that they went off into the Judean countryside, but he doesn't tell us much more about that. And it's interesting because all of a sudden, like he just stops talking about Jesus. Like the gospel of John is the story of, of Jesus, right? And, and, and so where does, where does Jesus go? Well, he kind of pauses and he starts talking about someone that he talked about back in the first chapter. Do you remember he started talking about John the Baptist? And here he, he's talking a, a, about John the Baptist and his interactions with his disciples. And, and the disciples come up to him. John the Baptist's disciples come up to John and say, you remember that guy that was over on the other side of the, of the Jordan River, the one that you testified about? Like he's baptizing. And not only is he baptizing, but he's baptizing more people than you are. Apparently, the baptizing was a thing back then. I guess just what you did, apparently. But, but like, there's more people that are going to Jesus than they, were, than they are going to you. And if you listen carefully, if you listen to the, the kind of the intonation of, of their voice, you hear a hint of resentment, don't you? Because at, at this point, his disciples, they didn't see uh, Jesus the way John the Baptist 
saw Jesus. They didn't actually even see Jesus as, as a person. They simply saw Jesus as, as competition. Now maybe, I know I can relate to that. And maybe, maybe you can as well. Like, I think we have a tendency, maybe again, I'm, I'll speak for myself and, and you can relate to this if, if it fits you, but I have a tendency to compare myself to other people. I have a tendency to, to look at, at other people's lives, look at other people's possessions, look at other people's positions, and, and to compare myself. And, and part of the problem with that when I begin to compare myself is I, I begin to no longer see them as, as people, but I get, begin to see them as, as competition. I no longer see the truth of, of who they are or the truth of who I am, but I instead begin to see and, and, and believe the, the lies and the assumptions that I am making about who they are and about who I am. And the problem with that, typically, is that is it leads us to one of two places. When we're comparing ourselves with other people, it leads us to one of two places. One is, is it leads us to pride, thinking, I look at someone else's life, and, and boy, my life sure looks a lot better than theirs. My job, my family, my whatever. I, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Or on the other side, it'll lead to resentment. I look at their life like, man, I wish I had that car. Man, I wish I had that job. Man, I wish I was going on that vacation. And I have a, a hint of, of resentment. Like there's, there's really what I've learned about comparison in my own life. And maybe you can, again, you can relate to this. Is that it rarely leads me to feel better about myself. It rarely leads me to feel better about any of the other people that I'm comparing myself to. And it never, it never leads me closer to Jesus. And maybe you can, like I said, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe that rings true with you. But I think the question that we have is like, that's a, a natural problem that we have for whatever reason. That's just part of how we, we operate and, and function. And, and is there a solution? Well, I don't know, but I think we learned something in, in this passage. Because it's interesting that, that John the Baptist's disciples, when they went to him, they, they knew what John believed about Jesus, right? They said, remember the guy that was on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about. They knew exactly what John had said and they knew exactly what John believed about Jesus and yet they wanted John to be elevated. They wanted John to be higher. They wanted John to baptize more people because they wanted to be part of a, of a winning team. They were resentful of, of Jesus. But we learn from John, the author of this gospel, in the first chapter that John the Baptist had a specific purpose. It's in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, where it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to that light. And John the Baptist, he knew, like he knew that this was his purpose. So listen to, to his response as he, again, as he responds to his disciples. He said, it says in, in verse 27 of chapter 3, To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. You see, unlike 
his disciples, John the Baptist, he recognized that, I'm going to stay away from, from comparison. He understood what they were trying to do, and then he explains what, how he sees this, this situation. And he says, in this situation, he said, I'm like the best man at a wedding. Now, I'm, I'm sure a few of you have been a best man at, at a wedding before. I've had the chance to do this, I think, one time. Uh, and I, going into it, I thought I knew what I was supposed to do, right? I, I need to plan a cool party. I need to come up with a good speech. And then I got to have a great idea for decorating their car. That's really all there is to it. It's just not that complicated to be the, the best man. But what I realized as I served in that role is that there's so much more to it, right? That you are there to, to support the groom, you are there to, to help and to, to bring what he needs, to get what he, what he wants, to help fulfill what he was there to do that day. Like that is part of the role that, that when the, the groom and the bride, when they come together to make this lifelong commitment, you are there to be a, a support, to help care for and, and make sure that, that everything goes off without a hitch and even beyond that. And then as the, the best man, like in that moment, when the bride and the groom are making this lifelong commitment and covenant, that is when, like, that's when my joy is, is complete. That's when I, I get to celebrate with, with the guy who is one of my best friends, right? Like, I, I want to celebrate what's taking place. And John is telling his disciples, like, this is my joy. This is what's taking place in Jesus, and this is how I feel because all of these things are happening. His success his accomplishments, the things he's doing here on earth. This is, this is what brings me joy. And he lets his disciples know and, and understand. And he says the way that that's going to happen is if the groom, Jesus, if he becomes greater and I become less. You see, what John the Baptist is telling his disciples in this moment is, his, is he's saying it's, it's not... What counts is not comparing yourself to other people. What counts is not uh, wanting what others have. What counts is not seeing whether your status is, is higher or lower. What counts is not trying to elevate yourself, but what counts is pointing to Jesus. What counts is, is elevating G Jesus. What counts is, is supporting the work of Jesus on earth as it is in heaven. That is when our joy will be made complete. That is what he is sharing and, and explaining to his disciples, that, that he must become greater and, and we must become less. It sounds simple, doesn't it? But, but do, we, do we actually do that? Do we actually do what, what Jesus taught his disciples, what he instructed his disciples what he invited his disciples into doing when Jesus in Mark chapter 8 when he says if you want to be my follower if you want to be my disciple you must deny yourself you must give up your own way and take up your cross and follow me as C.S. Lewis would put it he says we must learn to play great parts without pride and small parts without shame because you see, if, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, then we are called to live he-first lives in a me-first world. Like that's the problem with, with comparison, is we end up, it ends up being all about me. But when we are, are declaring and deciding and we are uh, 
leaning into the, a life of following Jesus. We are called into a, a he-first life in a world that would just say, me first, all day, every day. So let me ask you a question. Like what, what have you put, or what have, maybe you can ask yourself this question, where or what have I put ahead of Jesus? Have I put me ahead of he in my life? Maybe in, maybe in a relationship. Maybe it's in a, a possession or even like a, a job. Maybe it's in a desire that you have. It's, it could be anything that, that we begin to elevate above Jesus in our lives. And, and the problem with that is, as you ask yourself that question, is that sometimes we don't even realize that, that we've done it. That we've taken a relationship and we said we've put a me first stamp on it when we need to have a, a he-first attitude towards it. And until we actually take some time and, and take just an assessment of, of the different areas of our lives, our relationships, our, our job, our, our family, our possessions, whatever you name it, to determine, am I elevating this thing? Am I giving it more time, attention, resource, power, control in my life than I'm giving Jesus who says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. You must give up your own way, take up your cross, and, and follow me. Because here's the thing for us. I think that this idea of, of doing that, of, of living a, a he-first life and in a me-first world, it doesn't come naturally to us. We are naturally selfish people. We naturally are people that, that compare ourselves. We are naturally me-first kind of people. But to become he first, to, be, to actually put Jesus first, it's birthed out of belief in him, which leads us into this last section in, in this, in chapter 3. So it's in John chapter 3, in verse 31 to 36. Here it says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Now, there's a little bit of, of, not controversy, but a little bit of difference in understanding around this last paragraph, right? So, so John, the author of this gospel, he, he tells us that Jesus went off into the, the Judean countryside with his disciples, and all of a sudden he jumps back to John the Baptist, who's, whose disciples were upset that he wasn't baptizing enough, and then John replies and says, no, I'm just, I'm just the best man, and I'm super excited about all the amazing things that, that Jesus is doing. And now there's this, this statement that follows it. It's all kind of weird, right, that all of a sudden he's... John the author is talking about Jesus, and then he kind of just jumps back to John the Baptist, but I think it all kind of points to what is said right here, and, and what's confusing is, is some would say that this is John the Baptist speaking, and some would say that, no, this is John the author that is speaking, and, and it, for us, we, it's just a little, left a little bit uncertain. If you want my opinion, I think this is John the author who is, who is speaking. 
And what he is doing in this paragraph is he is taking what's, what he's written about in the first three chapters of this story of Jesus, and then he's, and he's helping to point us to the, the final 17 chapters that we're going to read behind. And he's, he wants to make things clear because clear is kind, right? And so he wants to help people to understand, like, this is how I want you to be reading and, and approaching and understanding this story because it's going to get even better and it's going to get even harder. And so he makes it very clear. And he makes it clear by, by really pointing out three significant things in this passage. The first is this. He points out that Jesus was bringing heaven to earth. Now, we've talked about this over the the last few weeks, and we saw it a few weeks ago when Jesus changed water into wine. He was doing the greater things that he had promised Nathaniel that that they would get to see him do. But when he changed water into wine, and as we read over the next few weeks, when he does these miraculous signs, it's, it's just not about the miracles. Jesus isn't trying to impress anybody or impress anyone with, with a fancy miracle. What he is doing is he is giving evidence that the kingdom of God is invading earth, on earth as it is in heaven, and that Jesus himself is being inaugurated as the king. These signs, these miracles, these things weren't meant to impress anybody, but to point to Jesus as the Messiah King, as the saving King who was coming. And John wanted to make sure that that was clear. Listen, he says, the one who comes from heaven is above all. And this, this is just a glimpse. I mean, it's a glimpse of what we're going to see in this story, but it's a glimpse in just in the story of God that will be completed when, when Jesus will return and all things will be redeemed, all things will be restored, and all things will be renewed. He's just giving a glimpse of what's to come. Like we talk about the kingdom of God being a, a now and not yet kingdom. Like right now we can experience redemption, renewal, and restoration, but not complete Like Jesus is giving us just some clues and John is just pointing to these clues of of what's to come. And this is the first of the three main things he's pointing out in this. The second is, is this, is that Jesus was sent to both bring truth and to be truth, the truth of God. Now, this is a theme that we'll, we'll get back into in John's gospel because truth will come up a number of times. Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth. In the life. But here, let's just start with maybe just a simple understanding of what truth is. Truth, as we would define it, is, is that which is in accordance with reality. Simplified truth is, is reality. Truth is what is, is what is real. So Jesus was sent to bring the reality of God on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was filled with with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the presence of God without limit. He spoke the words of God. He manifested the truth of God in his person. He was and is the word made flesh. And because of that, at least the third thing that John was pointing out here, that Jesus is where the road splits. That Jesus is where the road splits between the light in the darkness. That Jesus is where the road splits between life and death. And we get to choose which road we're going to take. John puts it simply at the end of 
of this passage. And it's, it's never as simple as it sounds. It's never as simple as it seems. And, and as you read, as I read this verse, you'll probably walk away from this verse with more questions than you have answers. But sometimes the mystery is, is okay for us to, to struggle with. But here's what John says at the end. I've already read it once. But he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. Paul says something similar in, in Romans. He says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And I think that the key word in both of these passages, the key word that we see in both of them is the word believe. It's a word that as we read through John's gospel, that we're going to see come over and over again. In fact, I would encourage you, if you, if you read from a, a hard copy of Bible, if you have a Bible at your house and you read and you take notes in it and you underline, like begin to underline and circle or circle or however you mark it, the word believe. Go back and start in chapter one and go all the way through as we read this and you'll find that it comes up again and again and again. And it will come up even next week as we jump into another part of the story of Jesus as told by John. But that's the key word in this passage. And I think that for us, we, we have an understanding of what we think believe means, right? It, for us, it, it means accepting something as, as true or real. I believe that this is a table, right? I believe and accept that, this is, that that is true. That is one way that we understand the word believe. Or maybe we, we use the word believe as almost like faith or putting our trust in someone. I believe in, in Jesus. I have faith in Jesus. I, I trust him. Or maybe as, as Ted Lasso would say in the show, Ted Lasso, which I don't recommend necessarily, but he, but he says, like, I believe in hope. I believe in, in belief. And what he means by that is, is this this confident hope in what seems completely impossible. Like those three things, they're, they're accurate ideas of what it means to, to believe, to understand what, what is true and, and to accept what is true, to have faith or put faith in someone else and to even have just this confident hope in what seems impossible. But when, when John used that word believe here, that word believe when in, in its original language and context, it, it has such a much deeper meaning than, than just simply those things. It would also include the idea of, of allegiance or fidelity or obedience and surrender. Like when I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, it's, it's, it's not just simply accepting the fact or putting faith in him, or having a, a, a hope in what's impossible. It's actually allegiance with a king. It's a fidelity and commitment to the king. As, as I thought about it, I actually thought about a, a team like, like the Mariners. I don't know if we have any Mariners fans in here. Maybe just a few. I know of one. But the, like, I used to be a Mariner fan, but I just gave up hope, right? I, I stopped believing, right? But like true Mariner fans, they have fidelity. They have this lifelong commitment and allegiance to a team that no matter how it plays out, they will never give up. They will never let go. They will just continue to root and cheer and have this confident hope in what seems impossible. 
But for us, we're, when we believe in Jesus, as John puts it, when we believe in Jesus, when we believe in the Son, when we believe in the Messiah, the saving King, we're not just putting allegiance to, to a team, but we're giving allegiance to a king, to the saving king. That's the, the fidelity, the, the commitment that we're making. It's, I think we can, can easily think that, that it all comes down to a one-time decision, right? Like, like I put my faith in Jesus in, in a moment. I, I, I accepted him, and, but it's, it's an ongoing commitment. It's an ongoing relationship of obedience and surrender and even, and even allegiance. Remember what, what John says at the end of this letter, and maybe you don't remember if you weren't here, but I've, I've mentioned it most Sundays because I just think it's so important that at the end of this letter, John says something powerful. He says, these are written, basically saying all of the things that I have written up to this point, the entire story of Jesus, these are written that you might believe, that you might surrender, that you might obey, that you might have this fidelity. All of these things are written. You might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. Because as we've read so far in this gospel, in this story, it's, it's been a story of, of, an, of invitations to, to come and see, right? That's what Jesus said to Andrew. That's what Philip said to Nathaniel. And we'll, we'll actually see that continue to, to move on and, and on. And, and we'll see people come and, and see Jesus, come to see who he is, come to see what he will do. But in this moment, in, in John chapter 3, verses 22 to, to 36, John is, he's, he's shifting their narrative. He's, he's shifting the, the focus. He's, he's shifting the invitation and he's shifting the decision from come and see to come and believe. And it might seem like a, a minor shift, but it's, it's a life-changing, a life-altering shift in it. And the question for us is like, why, why is he doing that? And, and even like, why would he do this right now? Why would he kind of take this pause in the story, jump back and talk about John the Baptist, and then basically point us to this idea, this, this split in the road where we decide, do I believe or do I reject? And I think part of it is because John... John knows the end of the story. Like, like many of us, if we read this gospel already, he, he had an idea of what was going to take place throughout the rest of the story. He wasn't journaling this as it happened. He, he would sit, sit down many years later to write down this story, guided by the Holy Spirit. And he knew, John knew that on the night, or the night before Jesus would be crucified, that he would talk to his disciples. And he would sit, or he didn't know this in advance, but he knew as he was writing this, that this is, what, this is what was going to come. That at John chapter 16, and you can flip there because it won't be up on the screen, that Jesus would say this to his disciples as he's kind of wrapping up his last night with them. He would say these words starting in verse 31. Do you now believe? Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me alone, yet I am not alone for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that you may, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome 
the world. See, I think what I think Jesus, sorry, what I think John is, is doing here is, is gonna, he's pointing the disciples back to this little story that, that John, about John the Baptist, where he talked about being the best man of Jesus and watching it as Jesus and, and the people of God established a covenant relationship, a relationship of fidelity, a relationship of trust, a relationship of commitment, a relationship of, of allegiance. And he's like, remember? Like, he just knows what's gonna, he knows what's gonna take place at the end. And so as he was being guided by the Spirit, I believe that John wrote all of this, crafting it in such a way that, that those who would read it ourselves included, that we, would, that we would see Jesus, that we would believe Jesus, and then we would spend the rest of, of our lives giving our lives in obedience, in fidelity to Jesus. Or as, as John the Baptist would say, having Jesus become greater and I become less. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, um, thank you for the reminder this morning of your love, your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, that, that you would even give us a, a choice in, in this matter, Lord, to, to believe you and follow you or, or to, to reject you, Lord. I think even just the fact that you would give us that choice, it demonstrates a, a great amount of, of love for people, that you wouldn't force our hand in the matter, but that you would open up an opportunity for us to, to align ourselves with you, to put our hope and our faith and our trust, but also our, our commitment and our fidelity and even, and even our allegiance in Christ the King, who came to, to not just do a bunch of fancy miracles, but he came to die so that our sins might be forgiven and we might be able to enter into a new life, into a, a new creation, into a renewed presence with Almighty God. Jesus, I pray that as we move into this, the, the remainder of this story, and as we seek to follow you in, in the days ahead, that, that we would be people who would, who would put you first above all other things, and we would allow ourselves to be less. We would let go of, of the things that are, are either distracting us or the things that are pulling us away from giving you the, the attention and the, the glory and, and the praise that, that you deserve. Help us, Lord, to, to navigate that. And Lord, would you increase our faith? Would you increase our belief, that we would not only believe the, the facts of who you are, we would not only put our hope and our trust in you, we would not only like, just have this confident hope in what seems impossible, Lord, but you would increase our commitment. You would increase our, our desire to follow you no matter what, no matter how things go in our lives or with other people, that we would just follow you with fidelity and we'd follow you with commitment. We know that we can't do that on our own, that we need your strength. We need your Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would give that in abundance today. Just as we read this morning, you give the Spirit without limit. Lord, would you give us your Spirit without limit today in the days ahead as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
that at the beginning of, of this passage that John points out that Jesus goes out into the countryside with, with his disciples, that, that they weren't following Jesus by themselves. They were doing this together. And, and they were actually with their friend, right? They were with their, their rabbi. They were with their, their teacher. Because typically when, when we leave on a Sunday morning, I say something like, you know, as we leave this place, we're not leaving the presence of Jesus, but we're taking the presence of Jesus with us wherever we go. And not only that, but where we don't go alone, right? We're, like Jesus is with us. We, we have this friend with us, but, but we, we go out together. There's, there's power in, in numbers. There's strength in, in, their, in numbers and in, in our ability to, to follow Jesus through both thick and thin better off doing that together so so as you leave today be reminded that that you're leaving this place together and, and god bless you as you go and we can't wait until we see you next week have a great day